What happens, folks, when a pro-life activist from Austin, Texas, comes all the way to Canada for a week of pro-life activism? Well, stay tuned. I am joined by Gavin on my left. Stay tuned. Hi, folks. My name is Cam. I'm the host of the Pro-Life Guys podcast, a show dedicated to equipping you with the tools that you need to have compassionate and compelling conversations so that together we can change minds, save lives, and transform our culture. And today I am joined in studio by none other than Gavin. Gavin, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing excellent, Cam. Beauty. I am excited. So Gavin's been working with us up here in the Calgary office of CCBR for the last week or so. He's been connected with the team for quite a while now, doing some of our online presence stuff and some mock dialogue calls. We've had the pleasure of working with him, like I said, in person for about a week. It'll be a really cool opportunity to get his take on what this week has been like, what his journey has been like, and where he sees the conversational differences between Canada and America. I think it's super cool. I've been down to the States on a number of occasions to have conversations on college campuses. That's a lot of what Gavin's been doing over the last uh, while that he's been involved in the pro-life movement. And so very curious to pick his brain, to compare notes, and to dive into it. Without further ado, Gavin, bring me up to speed. Where and when did the pro-life issue kind of come onto your radar? Is this something that, that you've been kind of avidly dedicated to for a really long time? Is it something that is re relatively new on your radar? What, what has your journey been like? Um, it's been quite a long time. Uh, the first uh, 17 years or so of my life, I would have been neutral or even possibly described of as pro-choice. Um, I then started changing my opinion, reading around, and it became a process of looking at information in a new way, bodily rights, things like that. And I ended up actually flipping my position and my position has become only stronger uh, since I've become kind of like a pro-life nerd, a philosopher <laughs> involved with uh, different possibilities uh, with different groups uh, to do philosophy work and things like that. So I've become much more convicted as a pro-lifer over time instead of less convicted that's awesome. And and through a lot of that's obviously been been involved for quite a while. Usually as a lone wolf, have you been tied with different pro-life organizations? Um, I, I know that right now you're coming in from Austin, Texas. I don't know if you've always been there. Um, what have you been affiliated with other groups? Just as we start looking through the lens of what it's been like in, in this week, what groups have you been tied in with, if any? Yes, absolutely. Um, I started to actually work uh, with a uh, a varied slice of the pro-life movement. For one thing, I started doing kind of volunteer work for pregnancy centers, pregnancy resource centers. Uh, and in the Austin area in particular, the Georgetown Pregnancy Center, when they used to have garage sales and stuff, I would kind of hold down the fort because I'd be the only guy, often we're kind of short on fellas. <laughs> and uh, so I'd stay overnight in kind of unusual circumstances. Then uh, one of the most important pregnancy centers in Austin uh, the Austin Pregnancy Resource Center, now rebranded as Trotter House, did a reconstruction period spending a bunch of money, and yours truly was involved in painting the inside of the facility with cool. a long brush, uh, 12, uh, spending long hours trying to paint it with uh, what I will forever remember as eggshell white, which I will never get out of. <laughs> <laughs> so many shades of white. So it, they did an amazing job. And, and it looks like a million bucks in there. It has like chandeliers. You'd never recognize it. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. So that was my kind of donation phase, sort of, as like an adult more now. Uh, then a very big turning point happened in my life. In 2019, around August, a group that I still do a lot of work with now called Justice for All, which is actually in many respects kind of similar to CCBR, um, gave an, an important dialogue from debate seminar at a university, a very small university, Trinity University in, in San Antonio, Texas. I met some of those people who are friends of mine, really, really close friends of mine to this day. I became involved. I was trained for dialogue instead of debating in an intensive course, and then we hit the campus streets, so to speak. And uh, ever since then, I've done many, many, many outreaches on college campuses with them. And I've been pretty successful at it. Then uh, Coalition for Life, heavy volunteer aspect from 2019 to the present. Uh, that is another organization that kind of uh, helps people interface pregnancy resource centers, does prayer advocacy, all sorts of stuff. 
Uh, so I am still doing volunteer work with them to this day as well. Very cool. Love it. And, and obviously a ton to unpack there. I'm, I'm particularly interested in, excuse me, Justice for All, um, JFA for all of you um, acronym junkies and whatnot. That, that, is that Steve Wagner's group or, or who's running JFA? Yes, it is. Steve Wagner and his brother John Wagner uh, are the main forces behind it, but there's a bunch of other people that have been there for years, including uh, one dialoguer that has been there almost longer than everyone, <laughs> even <laughs> though she's, she's amazing. Uh, and they have a uh, office, a main office in Wichita, Kansas. So they often do outreach depending on where they want to go uh, at WSU, which is you know Wichita State University, which is right close by. And they've done a bunch of events in Texas, which I got uh, hooked up to. And they've done events as far away as UCLA in Los Angeles, California, I've been to that. Uh, they are very similar to an organization like CCBR or even Created Equal, but there are obviously some differences, which we'll, we'll cover in a minute here. Absolutely. And, and, and let's dive into that now. So you, 2019, August 2019, you say, so you're, you're getting involved, you're getting that debate to dialogue training, which I'd love to dive into. And since then, I, as we've gotten to know each other better and better through this week and, and even before that, being able to appreciate not only the volume of conversations that you've been having, but also the, the depth of conversations. And I'm curious if you can kind of start cracking open for some people in the audience, the nature of the conversations that you're having and maybe some trends that you've been observing. You've been doing a ton of stuff, not only on campuses, but also in other kind of urban out, um, settings and whatnot. Um, and so what, what have been the main principles of approaching conversation that, that you've been kind of looking at? And what have been the main themes and takeaways from the conversations that you've been having? What have, what have you noticed in all of the conversations that you've been having? Okay, that's a lot to unpack, but definitely, uh, I would definitely say that over time, uh, it has been increasingly difficult to get conversations because of what might be called a self-protection censorship kind of effect. And this is even in the United States where a friend will notice that a conversation is, ha is going on that they are mistrustful of, or they think that you are setting them up for like a media interview or a YouTube podcast or something. And then not necessarily yours, but somebody's. Yeah. Uh, and they try to say, you don't have to talk to him. You don't have to interact with this person. So that has been an unfortunate trend that I've seen develop. Uh, more and more people uh, will be uh, unwilling to engage in longer conversations where we actually make some progress in understanding each other's views. Gotcha. It makes a ton of sense. And, and obviously, unfortunately, that's something that we're seeing here in Canada. Not, I feel like that's a bit of the double-edged sword of, in, in many ways, the incredible ministry of people like Stephen Crowder and, and Matt Walsh and, and other people like that, these internet phenomenons, people that go on a campus or into train stations, whatever, and, and try to engage people. And yet, the, I'm curious about the substance of argument, because we're going to get into yes. kind of CCBR's approach to having conversations and what your experience has been this past week. And yet, I, I, I chatted maybe two months ago, for those of you new to the podcast, uh, we, we put out stuff almost every week. Um, I, I had a conversation recently with Emily Albrecht yes. talking about bodily autonomy and how, from her experience, there's been a rise in focus on bodily autonomy kind of arguments. So I'm curious what, what you've been noticing as you've been doing outreach over the last several years here, what have been the major themes and major kind of stumbling blocks that a lot of people fall into as they come to support abortion? What are the factors that are contributing towards so many people supporting abortion from your, from your vantage point? Oh, I can definitely, definitely <laughs> zero in on that very easily. And, and to your topic and to the person you referenced who's doing great work with uh, the Equal Rights Institute, Emily, uh, I would say that people on the street that I see, because I can tell because I know what the arguments look like, mm -hmm. will repeat things that they see on TikTok and mm -hmm. they're basically memorized scripts. So in the case of bodily autonomy, which is becoming very important, the uh, primitive comparisons to organ donation and exact phrases that are basically memorized stock phrases, I encounter repeatedly. A few times, and which happened also in Canada, off of one of the Prince's Island, I think, or whatever, uh, I ran, actually ran into somebody who referenced the violinist argument and actually knew it and was like a philosopher. <laughs> Virtually everyone else has canned memorization of giving special rights to someone that we give no one else, so why should we do that? No one is entitled to the use of another person's body without their continuously reaffirmable consent. 
And if you scour some shorts and clips, kind of like what actually Emily is doing for the other side, our side, uh, you find gr a great deal of memorization because when a person is prodded in the arguments, they just repeat. They don't really understand their arguments, but they become very heavily defensive. No, I'm right, pro-choice is right, but they can't articulate it, their views when challenged and refuted or attempted. Gotcha. And, and obviously that's something that we see at, at CCBR and I'm sure many of the, those in our audience, whether it's um, tied with one of our affiliate groups or, or another group entirely, um, that you're probably witnessing as well. And so Gavin, for, for how you've been trying to respond to that, all, all of these kind of canned lines, these slogans, these Twitter lines and whatever, um, do you find that, that once you start cracking into that person's kind of personal take, that as you get below the Twitter lines and as you get below that, that people are able to back up those um, worldviews or is it a matter of like oh my goodness i i've never really thought about it anymore like I, I thought this conversation would be over once i said my body my choice right i thought that this was the all i ever needed to know about the pro-abortion worldview that all i care about are victims of sexual assault mm -hmm. these important kind of lines when you mine a little bit deeper do you find that there is substance there or do you find there's a lot of um Kind of lack of understanding they kind of look at you with a blank stare and you're able to start unpacking this for them and help them understand that while we too um in the pro-life we would recognize that there are a lot of difficulties in our world there's a lot of suffering there's a lot of challenges that abortion isn't actually the solution to any of that and so right. what what do you find once you get a little bit below the surface is it is it a blank slate is it well-formed arguments or is it a a bit of a spectrum between the two kind of a spectrum between the two but if i had to err on one side I'm sorry to have to share with you that it is more likely that they don't have a proper understanding that would justify holding the view. Gotcha. Um, to be clear, something that I have made as an observational point, uh, if you're familiar with Trent Horn and his works, uh, recently I believe he did a, a fake uh, debate where he took the pro-choice side and the other person took the pro-life side. If we do understand the arguments of someone else, and we should try to understand a person with sympathy and with compassion, we should really attempt to understand their arguments. And a lot of times I find that many of the people who become involved in arguments do not understand really what their opponent's views actually are, even if they hold very sincere views. And I would say that it would be helpful for you to revive debate in high school and in school so that you could potentially go on for a number of minutes on either side. And if no one knew who you were, they couldn't tell what your position was because you really know their view. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, an interesting anecdote on that, that anyone who's done one of our programs before, whether an internship or a crash course, we do what we call mock dialogue. And I can get to that in a moment because I think that's one of the earlier touch points that you had with CCBR. Um, often I, I feel like, and, and you alluded to the violinist argument as well, I, I find that often it's pro-lifers who understand pro-choice arguments better than pro-choice people do. That yes. I, I think, again, especially of that conversation I had with, um, with Emily Albrecht about the, the depth of the bodily autonomy. And are they talking about a, a complete sovereign zone or are they talking about right to refuse? What, what are they talking about? And, and the vast majority of people that I talk to who support abortion literally have no idea. They, they've only ever thought about it as a one-liner or maybe with one kind of follow-up. And so when pro-lifers are actually practicing with us as in our mock conversations, they're actually hearing far more comprehensive arguments than they're ever going to hear on a street corner because my colleagues and I have so much experience talking to people and building arguments and trying to understand where they're coming from that often we, we actually present a far more comprehensive mm -hmm. pro-choice argument than anyone might actually hear on the street. And that kind of brings me to the question of, how did you end up in Canada? How, how did you end up doing this this program with CCBR, this week uh, of training and outreach? What was your initial touch point with CCBR in the first place? I'm curious. Uh, that is very, very, very simple. <laughs> what happened was is one of uh, the best staffers on, in C on CCBR uh, who works here decided uh, to take a class, uh, I believe an online class, one of the Justice for All classes like Love 3, or seven conversations in seven days, seven days or something, uh, a full class with Justice for All, the group that I'm heavily involved with. And what happened was is then the other person, there was another person on the staff of Justice for All that decided to take 
one of CCBR's uh, offerings. Yeah. And they were friends and knew each other. So I became introduced to a CCBR staff member. Then I began one thing led, led to another, talking to them both. And then I started investigating CCBR stuff and I was floored. I was shocked. I could, I, I love the website. I started finding out about Jojo Ruba and Stephanie Gray and all this uh, vast history. And then reading Jonathan M. R. you know, one thing led to another. Mm -hmm. And and just, I became enthralled. Then uh, the staffer for uh, CCBR uh, said, you know, it'd be great if you could potentially come up here because I had initially tried to come up here during like the pandemic. Mm -hmm. There was a crash course or some sort of reasonable uh, offering that was similar to that. And that was basically not possible to attend because of a bunch of reasons. So then I said, well, if I ever get a chance and if they ever lift these requirements, you know, like to get in, I will go. And once it happened, I saw an opportunity and I took it. And that's how I ended up here because originally most organizations will require if they have like a two month internship, you show up basically for that for the four month. So they'll give you a, an abbreviated schedule if you can, but they're not going to give you a massive hyper abbreviated what I call a drive by internship, <laughs> you know, like where you're just where they solve all the problems for you and make it all happen. And what I am just uh, so very grateful for is that CCBR made everything happen for me from, you know, they just, they pulled out every stop to make sure that this happened. And I, I'm just, I, I, there's nothing I can say. <laughs> well, well, it's been a mutually positive experience. We, we've loved having you here. We're going to dive a little bit more into that experience. I'm curious though. So you, you kind of come into the lens of support through Christ Pregnancy Centers and, and then through JFA and and an approach. And then, so you come in contact with C-Spare, you go to the website. What was your initial take on, on the difference of approach? Because I know the Justice for All does a lot of similar style kind of conversations, still trying to build a ton of common ground. Not, But I, I think it's fair to say that there are not only substantial differences in the conversational format, but also in the outreach approach, particularly as it pertains to abortion victim photography. And I'm curious what your initial thoughts were in looking at a group like CCBR that does have a slightly different approach than Justice for All and some of the other groups that you kind of mentioned early on. What was your initial thought? We're more comfortable with what we're familiar with. I wouldn't say that anyone's approach is necessarily uh, better or worse or not meaningful or worthwhile or anything like that. But what you actually do and, and your model of how you approach conversations and interactions can shape what tools you use and how you use them, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, for example, what I actually thought coming into this was that I would experience greater difficulty with uh, large poster boards that immediately remove the person's consent from seeing it, so to speak, in public because of the possibility of someone coming and saying, children are gonna see these images, how dare you? And me having to rebuild the rapport from the beginning. What I was used to almost exclusively would be taking like a brochure, which has images within that are graphic, but were generally shared a number of minutes into a conversation, typically with consent, which I still am fine with, you know, as a conversational model, but because of the model, the, the model for interactions that was seemingly being used by CCBR, their approach, it seems to me, is much more logical to use those images in the way that they do, yeah. due to the format. So let me quickly make that clear. Okay, if it does the model that you typically use involve an eight hour campus visit, yeah. or does it not? Hmm. Do you see yourself giving a whole bunch of what might be called elevator pitches. And I think that Emily Albright could comment on that, you know, <laughs> or is it somewhere in between? Are you standing in the public in a crosswalk where you only have seconds? Or are you uh, going door to door and knocking? All these things are very different. And CCTVR uh, actually won me over to that in the sense that I was so used to doing something one way because I didn't have so many varied interfaces. And CCBR has far more different possible interactions to gain contacts and views. It's not the same here. So 
as a result, I've been very pleasantly amazed. It has been worked out very well. And I definitely think that use of, of ABP, especially uh, in large poster uh, signs, it has its place. And I've become far more uh, accepting and believing that it is a very effective method of reaching people before and after, based on the after, you know, of the experience itself. You won me over. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's fantastic to hear. And, and honestly, I, I, as I've shared on the podcast on a number of occasions, similar to my journey, right? Like I was really apprehensive 10, 12 years ago when I was first connecting with CCBR as to how these images would really impact. And, and in many ways, I was worried deter conversation entirely and that maybe I'd be scrambling to try to get into a conversation in the first place or I'd just be like bludgeoned and attacked by people who were horrified by the pictures. And yet what I have found time and time again is similar to to what I'd love to dive into a little bit more is that not only do they challenge people that don't even stop and talk and maybe they just keep walking on by and, and I'll dive into a few of the, the beautiful testimonies of, of the impact that has had on people, but also um, that it actually sets a much more firm parameter and, and kind of paradigm for the conversation than otherwise through through standard clipboarding or surveys or, or that kind of thing. But I, I'm curious. So you you arrived last uh, Saturday. Uh, no, no, Thursday officially. Yeah. I did a little tourism and then you picked me up literally last Saturday. Yeah. And this is Friday. We're about to be fully uh, for a special excursion involving Kind of a hike in the area for scenery <laughs> gotcha and and i want to dive into that partly because i'm biased and and i love the scenery and and the community here but i'm curious because so a lot of people that i talk to they anticipate that if you're going to use these signs you you must be like a crazy a type in your face um wear your heart on your sleeve outgoing at times overly aggressive kind of people what what has your takeaway been and, and like don't worry about offending me, but like, what has your takeaway been with regards to the team that you've been working with? You, you've had the opportunity not only to work with staff over the past week, um, volunteers, um, interns, the whole shebang. What has your takeaway been? And, and I'm sure that, I mean, pro works in, in the audience here probably be like, oh, whatever, what do you say? It doesn't actually matter. But like, I'm curious as, a, as somebody who's kind of parachuted in for the last week, have you been surprised in any way by the, the kinds of people that are attracted and currently doing CCBR's kind of work? Surprised, sort of, but um, basically I've been incredibly impressed and I've been kind of awestruck with the efficiency that there's just nothing that's wasted. Everybody's, you have this, do you have that? What are you doing? It's like, it is good. It's like a good thing. It's incredibly organized. And that, at least it gives the appearance of that, that I think is very, very comforting because you know that you're in good hands if you do some internship work as an intern. If this is what they could do in one week, I don't know what they could do in two months or two or four months. All I know is everybody was Johnny on the spot kind of, and now we're going to go do this. And has this been done? What's next? Get seated for this. And there was never a dull moment. It was like, you weren't twiddling your thumbs here at all. You were, wow. I mean, it, it it's incredible. It's, I, I'm really, I'm really impressed. <laughs> that's fantastic. And folks, that's why it takes a long time for us to get back to your emails because we are <laughs> on the go so often. I'm out doing outreach and all that kind of thing. Um, before I dive into the outreach, the last thing I want to talk about before we get into your experience actually doing outreach, the training. So you've gotten a ton of training. You have mined into a ton of different resources. What was your takeaway on some of the coverage of, of talks when I know Quina, our colleague Quina Casamayor, our volunteer, Calgary volunteer coordinator, provided a tremendous amount of the training. I gave a couple of them. I think that a few other people may have tied in at different points. What was your takeaway from the training? Was it kind of what you were expecting? Was it all stuff that you had heard before? Was there any kind of new nuggets that you kind of took away? What, what was your takeaway from that? My takeaway is the training was fantastic. The follow-up was unbelievable. Quiana specifically, and a few others in certain uh, relief roles uh, were involved in like Tuesday night uh, dialogue practice sessions. Uh, something similar is done with uh, Justice for All, but also here, this was very regular and it gave the person to, uh, the chance to practice in without uh, undue pressure, where there could be a freeze, stop, you know, uh, it's very similar to actually we do Justice for All. And it was, an excellent chance to have feedback on specific training that was given. Now, CCBR 
has had uh, some online courses, the one of which I took, which was the same one was taken by the other person, Justice for All. And the training here specifically was a much more kind of detailed version of the same stuff uh, because it, it, it is very similar. There were, there were some important differences, but mostly it was their core philosophy and roadmap, which I definitely you know, would like to uh, comment on. I think that actually builds confidence that the person feels that you know, I'm being shown how I'm supposed to proceed in these conversations to have something that I can lean on as a crutch, so to speak, as a student. And one of the things that I found very, very helpful was kind of like the live feedback uh, of the uh, records keeping of the circumstances before, after development, which Joanna talked about months ago, which seems to be inserted into like choice chain events to determine what the person's position was before, right at the beginning of the conversation and afterwards in various ways. It provided valuable feedback for me to see that I was staying on focus and on message and that maybe that I was actually uh, tracking my progress to a limited degree. I, I understand it's anecdotal but, and has limitations, but it was awesome to me. That's, again, so good to hear. And and kudos, we mentioned her already, Kwana Casimiro has really um, piloted a lot of this. And a and, uh, shout out to a friend and colleague, Scott Hayward, who was on the show last week, I believe, time of posting. Um, who, who has this great quote, I'm going to butcher, not butcher, I'm going to paraphrase it, um, who, who says, if you can't capture it with metrics, then it doesn't matter. If you can't capture something with metrics, then it doesn't matter. I don't know if I agree with that in all situations, but I think that there's a tremendous value in trying to put a metric behind as many things as possible so that you can learn whatever you can. You can't necessarily um, explain the entire world away by statistics and, and outcomes and that kind of thing and that the plural of anecdote is not statistics per se but rather you can have meaningful takeaways from it and so I, I want to dive first of all into your take on the roadmap because the roadmap is something that we've really been trying to develop here at CCBR to try to streamline conversations not only for experienced activists to make sure that our our conversations are as efficient as to the point as possible but in particular for newer volunteers, volunteers who may not have a tremendous amount of background in having conversations about abortion, I know that, that doesn't really speak to necessarily your experience because you've had lots of conversations before, but what are your thoughts on having a roadmap, a roadmap that, that um, by way of summary, encourages people to start by talking about the justifications for abortion, um, build common ground, make an analogy and ask a question, and then after that, talking about the humanity of preborn children, and if necessary, talking about the personhood of preborn children. I've covered this in a podcast before. I'll, I'll drop that podcast entirely um, in the show notes below. But Gavin, I'm curious, what are your impressions of the roadmap? Did you find it helpful? Do you think it'd be helpful for others? What do you think? I found it extremely helpful, and the phraseology, I have several things to say about all this, this is really important. Uh, the phraseology of common ground analogy question as opposed to more longer phraseology, uh, Trent Horn uses uh, uh, reapply, ask why, you know, uh, it, 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 you're basically covering the same kind of thinking, but it is easier to memorize for the students, so to speak, right? And I think that a roadmap actually gives the person confidence that they're staying on message and on focus and that they can apply kind of a template because most of the basic conversational style does consist of that, is that person brings up a harsh circumstance and you find common ground and sympathy and empathy for it. And then you create an analogy, so try not the toddler, and you ask the question, if we uh, would not do so in the case of a born child, then why is it okay to take the life of a child that was born, that hasn't been born just a few months earlier? Mm -hmm. You know, what's the difference? Uh, that, is really helpful for a new student. Uh, I think that the conversation tracker in some ways that I'm looking at right now in front of me is even more uh, practical in the sense that new dialoguers make a couple of critical mistakes in a typical abortion conversation with a pro-choice advocate. Those mistakes are not truly understanding what their view is early in a conversation. That, by way of that, I mean, pro-life labeling, but in fact, they're pro-choice where they don't really know, are there special circumstances? Is it limited? Are there no circumstances? It doesn't matter. She can do it, you know, what, through nine months? Is it just life of the mother where you're mostly pro-life? 
and when is it a viability you have to know those early in a conversation because that enables you to make other uh arg arguments i wouldn't say arguments but points right uh in order so that they can understand their own view and have to help you to understand theirs and how the conversations are ending all of this helps you stay on track and it helps you have more accurate discussions so you know what kinds of uh, philosophical track lines and when to approach in order uh, to, to match what they're actually telling you. For example, if someone says, I believe that she doesn't have to support it with her body, it doesn't matter if it's person. If you don't know something like this relatively early, you can take a bunch of time and not be talking about what you would need to do, which is some bodily rights argument uh, addressing specifically. <laughs> Absolutely, and I think that that I have found it incredibly helpful, even for my conversations too. Like you said, to be able to understand and and make sure that we have the forefront of our mind, uh, an accurate appreciation for where that person is coming, mm -hmm. as well as to uh, in some ways seal the deal towards the end of the conversation. That, that before I had this tracker, like you said. It, I can't say that I was shooting in the dark per se, but I, I feel like there was a degree of randomness in my conversations that, you know what, I, I'm trying to make assumptions, I'm trying to go down rabbit holes that I don't know if, if they're actually where you're at. And this has really helped me appreciate, okay, I need to accurately understand where they're coming from. What are they latching on to? Are they latching on to abortion, like you said, should be allowed in all situations, only in a limited number of situations, only in the quote unquote, hard cases of sexual assault and others, or is it just a, a matter of clarification when it pertains to a mother's life in danger? Where are they at gestationally? Do they think that, I mean, in Canada, abortion is legal through all nine months pregnancy. In some ways, I think that this would be even incredibly valuable at the state level where there is nuance to a state's uh, position on abortion, I'm sure, crossing state lines and, and you have different legislation. And to be able to appreciate, okay, do you agree with the status quo? Do you think the status quo is too early, too late? Where are you at? And so you get that concrete idea, but then you also, like I mentioned, make sure that you are feeling the deal. I had a lot of conversations where I would have really productive conversations and, and talk through a lot of things and they'd walk away and I wouldn't actually know if they would characterize themselves any different, if they would actually understand the fact that they have now come to reject abortion. And so with this tracker, I find that not only do you understand where they're at before, but encourages you to push towards, you know what, at the to say to somebody, you know what, at the beginning of the conversation, you told me that abortion should be allowed for a mother living in poverty and for a moms in high school and, and that kind of thing. Would it be fair to say that now you don't think that abortion would be okay in those situations? Okay, it allows you to seal the deal, not only not to pump our stats or anything like that, but rather to seal the deal in their mind so they walk away realizing not only did that pro-lifer make good arguments, but also those good arguments changed the way I view abortion. And I'm curious, so you, you've had a number of conversations through this week. I'm curious if, if you have a similar kind of takeaway that it, it kind of frames it in a way that allows you to gauge the progression. And um, in, in many ways for us, um, I, I don't know what your experience has been, that, that this doesn't your, your outcomes doesn't dictate how good of an apologist you are. That I, I don't want to say that the, the people who have the biggest transitions are necessarily the strongest apologists, but rather it allows the individual who's having the conversation or people like myself who's trying to work on, on mentorship to be able to say, okay, well, you in the last couple of months, you've had 10, 15, 20 people who have supported abortion just in cases of sexual assault and none of them have progressed any further. Let's talk a little bit about how we're talking about sexual assault. I'm curious from your experience, have you found it helpful, especially as it comes to how the conversations are ending, what it is that you're saying towards the end of the conversation and how you're understanding even your own approach for things that, that you know that you're really strong at and things that you know what I, maybe I, I need to focus a little bit more on articulating this so that when they are talking about viability, when they are talking about circumstances, something like that, maybe I need to hit them with a, a slightly different um, perspective or something like that. How did, how did you find it helping towards the end of conversations? Um, I would say all the things that had come before gives me insight into what I believe that they believe based on what they told me or what they felt they told me. Yeah. There's a divergence there because to be clear, 
One of the biggest challenges, I've had lots of conversations all over the place and on college campuses prior to coming to Canada uh, for now for several years. And what I've noticed is a lot of times people don't know what they believe and they aren't necessarily being inconsistent because they're being deliberately inconsistent. They don't understand that they are being inconsistent, not understanding their own belief. And so if you if you have unpacked that very early on in the conversation, then you were able to ask the right kinds of, of questions so that inconsistencies can be revealed so that they can say, hey, wait a second, my argument just doesn't work. Maybe he's got a point. Maybe I need to think about this more. And I think honestly, that's what happens. And that brings us to a larger point, which is really uh, something that I think is an advantage uh, for CCBR and their methods. And that is shorter, briefer, trying to have the right kinds of answers for short conversations, it has enormous practical value because if you can debate uh, a complicated bodily rights issue and you're a nerd like me, <laughs> you can talk to a philosopher for three hours and eventually win an argument on something like the violinist and make headway. But the average person has to have it unpacked for them in a way that they can understand quickly uh, because they don't know enough about philosophy to be able to understand the arguments and follow the train of thought and logic unless it is made relatively simple for them, the average person. So uh, that is the advantage of so many different uh, contact inter uh, formats that CCBR has that are not involving long contacts in, 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 in the interaction because um, honestly, uh, you can reach more people and you can reach them at a place where they are. And the place where they are is they don't have the understanding of the depth of the arguments to follow something that is very complex. Mm -hmm. Okay, so perfect example would be, uh, we all understand if you've taken CCBR's training that abortion essentially boils down to age discrimination. And it boils down to kind of like a temporary form of naturally resolving ableism, which is again tied to age and age discrimination. Well, if you handle all the attribute markers uh, for functionalism, you might call it Scott Klusendorf to the average person on the street, and you, you tackle them individually, yeah. as Quiana has, has, has mentioned in, in her, in her uh, discussions and in, in classes, it, it not only takes you forever, but this person gets lost and they don't understand the essence of what you're trying to say. What is abortion? Essentially, you're discriminating based on age and location, all tied to age. It, it is much easier to handle that in a way that is intuitive the way CCBR does versus uh, listing every single functional attribute and going through them with a five-tooth comb, if that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and that's obviously something that, that we always grapple with, of, of how do we balance that rapport and depth with the efficiency of so often we're talking to people on a street corner or on a doorstep where they might only have five, 10, 15 minutes kind of thing. And so you've got a combination of them not fully understanding their own argument and so needing to explain it at times to them while also having the limitations of their availability plus all the other people that are walking by because at the end of the day, we are constantly trying to make the calculus of every minute that I spend talking to one person is a minute that I'm not talking to another person. And so how do I balance that? How do I, how do I best optimize the return on investment in a way that allows me to have profound breakthroughs with the people that I'm talking to? It's not a matter of sacrificing the current conversation, but how do I balance that with the number, the sheer volume of people that we need to talk to? I mean, we, we spend thousands of hours every year talking to people about abortion, and yet we still only talk to 10, 15, 20,000 people a year in a country of over 40 million now, um, how do we optimize the number of people of, that we're talking to while also optimizing the quality? And so it's a very interesting that, that you say that. Well, the first thing to optimize is to recognize there's a hidden fallacy trap that I would even have been falling into originally, which I have learned contrary after being here. And that is, are you assuming that the contacts all involve successful tactical interactions with conversations. Mm -hmm. The formats being varied contribute to potential unseen effectiveness mm -hmm. that you can't show up, that you can't qualify in the stat sheet because you cannot 
Okay, so what I'm trying to get at here is uh, if you have a vehicle choice chain, you have something where you aren't really talking to people, but you're getting tons of views, or that day when we had bad weather, and I said, well, what are we going to do? And CCBR was like, we're going to maximize our efficiency. We're going to go to this walkway, and we're going to get all these people at lunch, and they're not necessarily going to stop and talk to you, but they're going to see it. Just because you aren't talking to someone doesn't always mean the method, the vehicle delivery method doesn't have validity and isn't part of the broader goal of getting our message out and the views out and the impact on the society, because that's what actually matters, not our confidence of saying, great, I convinced people, but rather actually changing the culture by whatever legal, ethical, fair, you know, means necessary is what you're asking the wrong questions, but I asked the wrong question. So I wish you could unpack that for me a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's so cool to see those impressions that we're making on people that, that rather than talking only to five people during the span of an hour, to be able to talk to five people in the span of an hour and have a thousand people walk past my sign and think about it. Not only do we have the polling we've talked about on a number of occasions uh, for the impact on the way people feel about abortion. There are people who changed their mind entirely. And so during this past week, so Gavin's been here with us, Ermgard came all the way from the Netherlands to spend a week with us and um, a woman named Katie as well. And Katie and I were doing Choice Jane, our um, holding three foot by four foot signs on a downtown street corner. We were talking to a, a number of folks yesterday and we had a young woman come by who was on her way to an appointment meeting a friend. And so she took one of our pamphlets. She said, you know what? I don't really think I know what I think about abortion. She took a pamphlet. She said, I'm gonna come back and talk to you guys later. Usually that means there's no chance we're ever going to see her again. Um, but this, this young woman came back about 15, maybe 20 minutes later, and she said, I have never thought about abortion that way before. That is the most horrifying thing I've ever seen. That can never happen. She didn't stop and talk to us. We talked through a few different circumstances. We're like, hey, so would you include sexual assault? Would you include some of these other cases? And yet for her, it was the pictures. It was an impression that was left with the pictures that really changed the way that she thought about abortion. Sure, Katie and I talked to a number of people in the meantime when she was off meeting her friend or whatever she was doing, but the pictures did the heavy lifting because when she came face to face with the victim of abortion, she realized that this isn't an abstract issue. This is a very concrete issue. And so it really changed the way that she thought about it. And I'm sure that there are at least some other people, I'm not gonna go out there and say like 100% of the people that see our signs are gonna change their mind entirely, but I'm sure that there's at least some people who have a very similar imprint where they see the picture, they haven't thought about it that way before, they think about it, and they end up shifting in their worldview. We, uh, by God's grace, we've been blessed to, to be met with a number of mothers who have literally introduced us to their children because they say, you know, I saw your truck driving down the highway, or I, I saw you guys out here for whatever reason. God is so good. So many times it's a matter of like, I saw you guys out here in a blizzard or in a crazy rainstorm, and I, I didn't want to stop and talk and get soaked, but I ended up canceling my abortion procedure. And so that's something that really resonates with me and kind of puts a little bit of um, thought behind that image as well. That, that certainly, we often talk about them as power tools and how you need to know what you're doing to use them, it's not just use them willy-nilly because just like a power tool, you can you can cause a lot of damage if you don't know what you're doing, but with the right kind of tools and, and with the right preparation and approach, you can actually accomplish a tremendous amount of efficiently. And and that's kind of been your, your experience as well, right? Yes, um, I would definitely say that being well-rounded matters. There's a reason why you will hear people, maybe from ERSA, what is your elevator pitch? Your very brief thing when you've got to respond. What if someone tells you, before even coming to this, what if someone tells you, you've got 60 seconds, you've got this, you know, and that's actually started happening to me, where someone says, I'm giving you this time and that's it. And when I finish this little sandwich, that's it. You, you still got to reach the person. You, you're not just going to say no as an activist, you're going to do it. And so anytime you have an opportunity, you're going to take it mostly, right? So it's up to you to be well-rounded. Uh, it may be well and nice that you can have an hour and a half discussion with exact philosophy and win a scholarly debate. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's great. But you, I would argue, need to be well-rounded at all the methods and not all of those methods involve interaction where you have uh, conversations itself, right? So that very point is, is actually achieved by the model that I've seen 
since uh, taking uh, this week. It's been amazing. Gotcha. That, that's fantastic. And, and to, to quote my colleague, uh, Michael Rosendahl, who so often says that often when we have these interactions, they're going to remember two main things. They're going to remember how they were treated and they're going to remember the victims. They're going to remember the images. They're going to have a vague impression of the arguments that were used and hopefully that vague impression will result in them changing their mind on abortion. But at the very least, the two most prominent things that they're probably going to remember in the most concrete of ways are how they were treated, were they treated with respect, with compassion, with kindness, and the images of the victims as well. And so I, I think that goes a long way. Gavin, I got to ask you, um, as we start to draw towards the close here, the million dollar question, I get asked all the time based on going down to the States, going down to do our, our Florida mission trip, which we often do in February every year with, with students um, who have time to go on college campuses. Yes. Differences. Differences between talking to Canadians and talking to Americans. What would your takeaway? What do you think? How would you characterize it? I spend a lot of time trying to get conversations privately outside of campus all-day affairs in the United States very often. The big difference, the takeaway that I have is in Canada, it was much, much, much harder to sustain an, an interaction that kept going, regardless, you know, of what I was trying to do. It's, it seemed that way, and more of kind of no, I won't, don't want to talk about it. No, I'm good. This kind of thing, uh, a refusal basically to engage, some hostility, but usually just apathy of just ignoring you, kind of in a, a way that you don't think that they probably would if you had some ordinary question. So it's targeted uh, ignoring and it's very different. It's much harder to sustain a conversation. I've spoken to different people here and there seems to be uh, an idea that, that the reason for that phenomena, if it exists, could be related to the concept that Canada having no abortion law, you can have an abortion through nine months of pregnancy, and the statutory language I believe is it's half out of the person's body. You know, you can literally do what you want as long as it isn't completely exited. Is that people think that it is a solved or settled matter, and we've already decided this, we've come to a collective agreement, and therefore why stir the pot? So we're not really going to talk about it. So to try to change the culture is hard because it's like accepted that we're done with that. Like if in America, at least with some people up until recently, maybe uh, guns or something, you know, that it's it's a it's something that, yes, there's some disagreement, but we basically agree that this this is true, that we have the Second Amendment, whatever. Yeah. So it's the same thing here. And I'm not sure if that's guiding all this. It may also because Canada may be more secular, more liberal, maybe more inclined towards an idea that is rising, unfortunately, I found on college campuses, which is to censor other opposing views, not be tolerant to even want to discuss, which is very, very important for a free society, uh, trying to shut down debate or or say you need to leave rather than actually having a, a, a dialogue and a face-to-face -face interaction, which is better for everyone on the sides to understand judge views. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm curious, uh, let me throw it to you this way. Would you agree in some ways with this sentiment? So I remember the first time I came back from a Florida mission trip in 2011. They, I was asked by a number of supporters, what, what was the biggest difference? And I, I tried to characterize it this way. I'm sure the numbers have skewed a little bit. If I were to approach 10 random people yes. in America and just go up to them and be like, hey, dude, how's it going? Nine out of 10 of those people would look at me like I was two-headed and like, do I know you? Do I know you? Like, why are you asking me that? Do I, do I know you at all? One person might be like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. How are you? Um, if I go up to 10 Americans and I ask them, hey, what do you think about abortion? Or what do you think about politics? Or what do you think about religion? I would get nine out of 10 people being like, oh, let me tell you what I think about this important thing. This like surface level familiarity was lacking in, in America. I, I felt that it was a little bit colder, um, ironically, than in Canada. Whereas in Canada, I find that it's the exact opposite. You go up to 10 random Canadians, be like, hey, dude, how's it going? Nine out of 10 of them would be like, oh, I'm, I'm good. How, how are you? And they're going to be polite and they're going to be forthcoming in that. And one person might be like super weirded out. Whereas on the flip side, if you go up to 10 random Canadians and ask them like, hey, what do you think about abortion? What do you think about religion? What do you think about politics? Like, uh, why would you ask me that? Like, I'm not going to tell you about my religious um, affiliation or political standpoint or abortion. What do you think of that? Do you think there's a little bit of truth in that? Do you think there's still kind of that sentiment of 
maybe Americans might be a little less inclined towards just having like a random fluffy conversation with a complete stranger, but they're more inclined to talk about their kind of political or, or kind of hard hitting views? Or do you think that that has shifted maybe? I think you're on to something here. To be clear, having, contact, having had contact in various areas like Washington, D.C. for the march and Dobbs here and mm -hmm. things like that that I attended, uh, I have ran into Europeans. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the attitude is very similar to what was actually voiced, because I would ask the pro-lifer that, that, that was visiting and say, what is the scene in Europe? What is the mentality? And they were like, well, we just all agree that it's legal up to 12 weeks and no one talks about it. And that's just not appropriate. The kind of maybe the the, the psychology almost seems kind of eerily re, uh, reminiscent of what Europeans would voice to me would be the case in over much of Europe, that it's just we just accept it. And it's like the 12 weeks. And if it gets too much beyond, no, you can't really do that. But up to then to each her own and we just don't we're not going to talk about this at all you know so i'm thinking that's my initial impression gotcha a little bit more inclined towards just abiding by the status quo kind of yeah. thing versus in america where there might be a little bit more kind of underlying tension on fewer people that actually agree wholeheartedly with that status quo there's more people maybe doing a tug of war on either side there's some people that don't think it goes far enough or some people it goes too far but maybe a smaller proportion of people that actually agree wholeheartedly with the status quo. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, it, I, I think that uh, if a person uh, is inclined to be okay with interactions with strangers, that already helps. I have definitely come to feel that, at least for my kinds of interactions that I'm familiar with, prior to being involved in the group or on the street corners doing choice chain, things like that, that having a pretext or excuse that is real, it's honest, and in my case, my tried and true methods are a survey approach or to say the truth that I'm taking a class and my evaluators are going to ask how I, well I treated the person and so forth, that a person will definitely be willing to help, but particularly in a specific setting by going to a college campus like UT because they are also students. It's much easier when you have a pretext because it doesn't sound weird for you to approach a random person. Mm -hmm. and, and to be clear, I think that's the advantage of the CCBR model, especially against the types of interfacing that they're doing. Having graphic images right at the get-go breaks that ice and shocks the person into wanting to talk, mm -hmm. and you get the fastest with the mostest, you get the furthest in making an emotional impression on people, because let's be honest, our intuitions can deceive us. And when we actually look at images and we look at graphic images of abortions of, of many weeks in, which kind of looks, so to speak, like a, a baby that is being destroyed, right? It has an emotional effect on people, which gets us the chance to make an intellectual case. Mm -hmm. That actually gets the person to actually listen to us in a way that we cannot easily get to by intellect alone because they're already leaving the crosswalk before we ever get a chance to make the case because they just don't care but when they see something very graphic like that for whatever reason why they're upset and there could be many reasons it at least engages them so that we can start making a case uh because too often the biggest advantage that i feel we have as pro advocates is compared to other atrocities in the past we have the ability for the victim of the injustice to more readily be able to say, don't do that to me, please don't hurt me. And in the case of the unborn, with the exception of abortion survivors like Melissa Odin, where it, abortion is, quote, failed, if you want to call that a failure, I'd call it a success, but you do each other. Uh, they are killed and, dis and they are destroyed, placed in medical waste. It takes us advocated on behalf of them but those other victims in those other scenarios like the holocaust you are able to have these living victims and it's constantly in the person's space so to speak and that's why avp i think is so important because kind of like those images of of, of persons in the holocaust shop in ditches you were able to get the fastest possible impression and you say this happens almost like 300 times a day in canada it has no abortion law is it ever okay to do this to another human being? 
they see the image, which looks like a little person, and emotionally react to it just like they would react to photos of, of, of people shoving ditches in World War II, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And, and so often we talk about how this is a comprehensive argument for abortion that, that I don't think that anybody would argue that, that we process information purely intellectually or purely emotionally, that, that we need both. That, that this is a comprehensive engagement method of let's invite them into intellectual academic dialogues. Absolutely. Let's engage the whole person with the visual evidence, with the academic truth, with the, the compassionate approach, all that kind of thing. Let, let's have a holistic approach and not relegate ourselves to only an academic approach because that's not who we are. Like, I think that it, it sells people short. I think that it fails the people that we're engaging. It fails ourselves to try to think that, that academia and, and logical argumentation is the only thing that shapes worldview and lived experience and future experience, but rather we are complex, incredible, beautiful, wonderful um, creatures that are more than just pure intellect and that it, it warrants a comprehensive engagement uh, strategy rather than a isolated engagement strategy. That's particularly important for us because the other side of this debate has the advantage, aside from media, you know, edge media, they have a euphemism and rhetoric advantage to, the, to, to positive things that are very valuable in society like choice, healthcare, medical choice. You know, when you're looking at that, how do you cut through that fast enough to make the proper impression to get a real discussion? It's very hard because the victims, again, of the injustice, uh, perhaps would say the unborn would be the absolute victim in it, like every case, they are disposed of. They don't tend to speak for themselves and we have to advocate on their behalf. And the other side is saying, you're taking away these rights and this person is talking, they visit. It isn't the same as those other injustices. It's same in terms of the injustice and the wrongness and we feel we might be on the right side of it, but the dynamics that I'm referring to of how the other side seems to have this built-in sort of advantage, so to speak, uh, is something that we have to fight against. And I would share with you one way that I've actually found is effective of, of breaking through that, aside from AVP, and that would be uh, the concept of not constantly fighting with a person who sees themselves as a pro-choice advocate about certain uh, details like, it just doesn't seem like it's a person to me. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's well-developed. And you say, well, to me at this very early stage, I get that your emotional response and your intuitions, you don't feel this attraction. And we're saying this is an actual case that's based on facts and science. And we believe that this is the truth about the situation. Our intuitions can betray us. Mm -hmm. That instead of arguing with the person say, no, the unborn exactly functions exactly like uh, you and I, we point out the difference and we ask why those differences matter and we point out that that is is still a form of age discrimination because they are actually often doing the same things they're just doing them in different ways like we breathe in and out with our lungs and they breathe in and build placental wall it doesn't mean that one is worth more or less that causes that entity a or entity b to be worth more or less and i believe that's the intuitive trap that we fall into because when we see something that doesn't resemble and function exactly like us, and no one does because they have different stages of development, which will give rise to different functions, we tend to assign lesser value, more fear to it, and believe that it is lesser, and our intuitions betray us. And I think that's where we fall off the, the, uh, the wagon there. And what I've noticed, the single most important dialogue trip, tip that I've ever had in average conversations, which I now have in almost all of my extended conversations, is to probe the person and say, are you sure your intuitions aren't betraying you? Are you sure you're not otherizing the unborn as compared to a human being that's born? And I use that example that I brought up, uh, the YouTube video uh, in the African bush where these children are running and they believe they've seen a ghost. And the mother of the, of the two twins is saying, no, why are you afraid? Finally, it's revealed that this is the first time that these two children have seen a Caucasian. So they believe that it's something less or dangerous because it seems to be not like them. And I think that's what happens. We say it's a clump of cells. 
we say that something that doesn't have the same degree of functionality when in fact at different stages we all vary in functionality and we assign a lesser value or fear to it and that betrays our, our intuitions because our intuitions in this case are wrong and that the unborn are valuable, complete human beings like you and me and worthy of respect and assumed moral status of the collection. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm sure Gavin that we could go on all day talking about um, not only the, the experience that you've had up here, but also apologetics. I'd love to get you back on the show to talk even in depth because you and I have had some really cool conversations about some of the arguments that you've been using. Um, as we draw on forward, we're at the hour mark right now. Thanks everyone for bearing with us. Um, we had a couple of events coming up at CCPR. We have not only our Toronto crash course coming up in the middle of July, we have our high school boot camp here in Calgary coming up early August. We got a number of other events coming up. And I wonder if you could kind of encapsulate something of your experience here and uh, give it to me straight. Do you think people should do these programs or, or what hesitancy, what kind of encouragement would you offer when it comes to doing an upcoming program or a similar kind of program to what you've done over the last week here? I 100% <laughs> endorse it. Uh, it was much more, much better than I actually thought it was going to be. I had very diminished expectations, especially since I didn't have the advantage of the two-month period or the four months. They packed everything even into a short period, and they made it happen. Uh, chances are, if you were a typical intern, you're probably going to have an extended uh, visit and, and, and immersion um staying with you know a group of fellas or, or gals or something uh and that goes on for at least a few months uh wow i mean if if, if i uh had to do everything else that i didn't do <laughs> that would, would have been the ongoing assignments and the other ancillary things that they were doing i don't know how i would be able to keep up it was pleasantly taxing to the extent that there was never a dull moment. I mean, it was every single, every single thing was like, and now we got to get lunch. And now we have to do this. It's like, wow, I'm getting my money's worth with this. So, and meaning I, you know, coming up, it, it, it was worth everything. You know, it was, it was fantastic. Um, specifically speaking, I would say the classes were, were good. I would say, um, if I have let me get some little notes here regarding that. Um, let's see, experience for that. I would say participate, if, if at all possible, in every single one, and that won't be hard because you probably will just by default, in each of the interfacing methods, because that gives you that experience to do it. The training was very important at the question and answering. Um, uh, really pay close attention and attend all of them that you can. Uh, and I think the relationships and talking to people was very important because people talked about their lives and their stories. And if you were staying in one of, say, the, the, the where there's a group of, of interns staying together, I imagine that gives them extra time to talk about what happened during the day when they go home and they're cooking dinner. That would be probably amazing. Um, the extracurricular things, those were also quite interesting. I, I never expected that. I've never seen anybody that would do, you know, other things that had to do uh, kind of connected but not really connected. That was shocking. I'm not sure what they do for the extended basis, but it was amazing. And I would say that uh, definitely uh, you should just ask every possible question about the philosophy and what they want you to do and really study heading into uh, what you would do. This Pro-Life Dialogue 101, which you get over uh, the internet, but also a physical guide, uh, the exercises, it makes it very simple to follow uh, your roadmap, conversational roadmap, uh, to stay on track so you feel like you're making progress and you're making an impact because that's what we all wanna do as activists. And I think that CCBR makes that possible for people in the simplest way imaginable. Uh, I can't imagine you um, doing anything but your best and really making an impact. I, I, I just 100% advocate it for high school students and kids, you know, potential interns. Uh, you need to do this and you need to do it now and you need to do multiple versions of it possibly and go on their trips. It, uh, it's, it, it, it's, it was just amazing for me. I really enjoyed it for the world. Fantastic. Well, I'm so glad it's been a blessing to have you with us here from last week. I, I look forward to our, our paths crossing again. Um, and thank you so much for the kind words. I, I appreciate all the staff that, that goes into making this happen. Those in our, our fundraising and bin department who make the entire operations possible. Um, you are our financial supporters and prayer warriors and, and activists um, to the entire team. 
thank you, thank you so, so much for, for everything. And like I said, there's a couple of really cool opportunities, weekend programs, uh, week-long programs, and even longer programs coming up in the future. Um, and so please do check them out. They'll be in the description below. And with that, thank you, Gavin. Thank you, you so much, Cam. Please <laughs> be and, and thank each and every one of you in the audience for tuning in. Um, may God bless you, finally, wherever you're at, however many hours are left in your day. Oh.